I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Coming up, a look at the science of 2023 that might be precursors for looking forward in 2024. Happy New Year, How on Earth friends. This time of year, you can't turn around without bumping into some top 10 list of the past year. Some might find that to be somewhat decimal biased. Well, for our first show of the new year, the How on Earth team looks back at a few of the science stories of 2023. Rather than trying to compile a consensus top 10, we have a selection of stories our team pulled together that they found interesting and hope that you do too. Some are events to look back on as a reminder of the year past, both successes and failures, and some might be precursors of breakthroughs in the future. Let's start with a top story picked by scientists for 2023 about the world's dashed hopes for what many physicists have seen as a holy grail. Scientists for over a century have been searching for a material that superconducts electricity at room temperature without any energy being wasted as heat. Currently, superconductors only work when cooled to the temperatures of liquid helium, which is almost absolute zero. Liquid helium is very expensive, and it takes a great deal of conventional energy to keep it cooled to almost absolute zero. So superconducting applications are mainly limited to MRI machines that scan your brain, and some high-tech university labs use supercooled superconductors for complex experiments. As for room temperature superconductors, when South Korean scientists last year reported having a material that superconducts without being cooled at all, the world paid close attention. The close attention included strong use of the scientific method and peer review. The peer-reviewed tests could not replicate the South Korean results and ultimately led scientists to conclude that the claim of a room temperature superconductor did not hold up. But all the attention did lead to a better understanding of superconductors. And at How on Earth, superconductors have been a topic for inquiry with some already optimistic news. Some scientists are developing applications for a medium cool superconductor material. It superconducts when cooled to the comparatively toasty temperature of liquid nitrogen, which is about 130 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than liquid helium. Here is an excerpt from a How on Earth show about superconductors. It was produced by Shelley Schlender, and it features a Boulder scientist working on liquid nitrogen superconductor materials. I'm Danko van der Laan. My company is Advanced Conductor Technologies. 
and we are making superconducting cables for high field magnets for fusion applications, accelerator magnets, as well as electric aircraft. Uh, all very nice, new, exciting applications that superconductivity really helps uh, enable. Danko Vanderlaan stands in a lab the size of a school auditorium. Nitrogen tanks. It's out cooling liquid nitrogen. And this is extremely cold, four times as cold as room temperature. Liquid nitrogen, what we use for cooling the superconductors to make them superconducting. This is readily available uh, for many welding vendors. Uh, it's inexpensive, especially compared to liquid helium. It's very practical way of, of testing superconductors. You can have an open bath that you fill with liquid nitrogen and perform your high current test. There's a lot of work being done on developing electric aircraft where you have electric motors as propulsion, moving away from carbon emissions instead of using standard jet engines. Large aircraft require 25 megawatts of power to take off. You cannot use conventional cables to provide this power because they are too heavy. So now there's a lot of effort to develop superconducting cables for electric aircraft that are light enough to transmit that type of power and enable fully electric aircraft that are large, that are twin aisle carrying 200, 300 passengers. That was an excerpt from How on Earth Science Show volunteer Shelley Schlender about a local effort to use superconductor materials to help make electric passenger jets become a reality. A new year often comes with making resolutions for the coming year, and often those resolutions relate to health, such as going to the gym more and eating a healthier diet, both of which often are related to shedding unwanted pounds as well as overall health. In this next story, How on Earth's Beth Bennett talks about medications that might help us meet New Year weight loss goals. Nearly one in three adult Americans, over 30%, are overweight, and the prevalence of obesity among children is growing. Obesity can lead to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and some cancers. More people die from being obese than from being undernourished. A new group of drugs with major weight loss effects hit the market last year, collectively known as, get ready for this, it's a mouthful, glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists, shortened to GLP-1, drugs. They were originally licensed to control diabetes and have since been licensed as weight loss medicines. Their growing popularity for weight loss has made it increasingly difficult to obtain them. The company that patented them, Novo Nordisk, reported gross profits greater than the GNP of Denmark, where it is based. Let's take a closer look at how they work. Remember, these drugs are called glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists. Let's tease this apart. First, glucagon. It's a hormone produced in the pancreas that raises blood sugar. You need a fuel source, i.e. glucose, in the blood for energy, and that's how it's doled out. But too much sugar in your blood can cause all kinds of problems. That causes diabetes. So the body regulates blood sugar pretty carefully by a back and forth between glucagon that releases it and insulin that puts those sugar away, typically in fat. So now you see why these GLP-1 drugs were initially developed to treat diabetes. But why do they also act to produce weight loss? To answer that, we have to look at the rest of the nomenclature. Glucagon is a peptide hormone, meaning that it's built of amino acids, the same building blocks of our proteins. Many hormones, including insulin, are peptides. Glucagon-like peptide 1 is another hormone, you guessed it, that's very similar to glucagon. 
that's produced in the pancreas, but this one is normally produced in the small intestine. Its job is to talk to the pancreas and other parts of the body, including the brain, telling them that there's plenty of food in the intestine. So it's not surprising that another effect of these drugs is to slow gastric emptying and reduce food intake. Aha, all of these affect one's food intake and thus can lead to weight loss. Wygovy is the poster child of these medicines. This year, a large three-year study involving heart disease patients showed that Wygovy reduces the risk of strokes, heart attacks, and death from heart disease, presumably because of the weight loss. It may seem that one can now eat as much as we wish and get an injection for that, but there are side effects to taking Wegovy, such as nausea, vomiting, headaches, tiredness, and a possible risk of developing some thyroid cancers. Most of the side effects come from the action of the drug on the intestine in slowing its normal activity. But we should not forget that at least as many people are undernourished, some of them severely, as are overnourished. According to the UN, that number last year was over 793 million. Too bad the solution to this problem is not as profitable as losing weight. Thanks to Beth Bennett for that story. Everybody talks about the weather, and this year, one of the top science stories has been how 2023 was a year of record-breaking heat, wildfires, floods, and more around the world. Last month, How on Earth's Susan Moran addressed this issue with Tom Yulesman, who directs the CU Boulder Center for Environmental Journalism. Here's an excerpt from their conversation about this record-breaking hottest year, starting with Tom Yulesman explaining why the heat in 2024 might be lower. Maybe. It's because there's a strong El Nino happening right now, mm. and there are all these events that tend to push things up a bit and push things down a bit. We'll go back down after this El Nino is over. What we have hit so far gives us warning that may, we may be closer than we thought mm -hmm. to that threshold. And this has been a mighty weird year on the climate front, even though in the U.S. we've averted the wildfires of last year, say, but around the world, I mean, wildfires, floods, each month it seems there's record-breaking heat. Where are we this year yeah. on the historic trend? I wrote a column earlier this year talking about global quote-unquote weirding, which was a term that was coined by Hunter Levins, a climate scientist, activist person years ago, and it was an extremely weird year. Temperatures in Phoenix, for example, soared above 110 degrees F for a record-shattering 31 days back in July. And when that happened, people began turning up in emergency rooms with third-degree burns after having fallen to the pavement. Mm. You know, that has happened before, but it was happening on a much more frequent basis than ever before. 30,000 feet up in the atmosphere, the jet stream became, I mean, the word deranged is not too extreme. It was very wavy, loopy, swirling, a pattern that was really not normal. A very and loopy year. It was a loopy <laughs> year, and it helped these lock heat domes in place that mm. made these heat waves so common. One meteorologist called the pattern insane. Very well-known climate scientist named Michael Mann likened it to a Van Gogh painting. <laughs> And it led to other things as well. India had heavy monsoon deluges that inundated cities for days. Wildfire season in Canada was out of control. It sent smoke streaming all the way to cities like New York City, and it turned the skies a sickening shade of orange. And I could go on, but mm. we only have a few <laughs> minutes, so I won't. 
That was an excerpt from a How on Earth Science Show featuring show producer Susan Moran talking with CU Boulder's journalism professor Tom Yulesman about one of the last year's top science stories, the world's record-breaking temperatures due to climate change. In the autumn of 2022, NASA's DART mission intentionally crashed into an asteroid to show that it could be a viable way to change an asteroid's orbit, perhaps to be used someday to redirect an asteroid that could impact the Earth. So, what better than to triple down in 2023 with three asteroid missions having special events in what was called Asteroid Autumn? First, on September 24th, the OSIRIS-REx mission returned a sample of an asteroid to Earth. OSIRIS-REx launched seven years earlier in 2016 and rendezvoused with asteroid Bennu in December 2018. OSIRIS-REx spent two years in orbit around Bennu. This culminated in October 2020 when OSIRIS-REx briefly touched down on Bennu to grab a sample of the asteroid, obtaining a sample of more than 250 grams well above the mission minimum requirement of 60 grams. In September this year, that sample capsule landed in the Utah desert with the valuable materials retrieved directly from an asteroid to help scientists better understand the origin of asteroids and the solar system. The second event of Asteroid Autumn was the launch of the Psyche mission on October 13th, and in July 2029, the spacecraft will reach and orbit its target, an asteroid called, coincidentally, Psyche. So Psyche, the spacecraft, will orbit Psyche, the asteroid, for two years to take pictures, map the surface, and collect data to determine Psyche's composition. As described by NASA, Psyche is the first mission to explore an asteroid with a surface that contains substantial amounts of metal rather than rock or ice. The scientific goal is to improve our knowledge of iron cores, a previously unexplored building block of planet formation. Then, on November 1st, the third and final event of Asteroid Autumn was when the Lucy Mission spacecraft flew by the asteroid Dinkanesh, which is the Ethiopian name for the Lucy fossil. At less than 800 meters across, Dinkanesh is the smallest main-built asteroid visited by a spacecraft. The flyby was intended to be mostly an engineering test of the Lucy spacecraft's autonomous tracking system, kind of like a self-driving car in space. And any data obtained about the asteroid was just to be considered bonus science. Well, quite a bonus it turned out to be. The Lucy spacecraft discovered that Dinkanesh had a small moon, now called Salam, making Dinkanesh a binary asteroid. But that wasn't the only surprise. As it turns out, 
the moon Salam itself was a binary asteroid called a contact binary because the two pieces were actually touching rather than freely orbiting around each other. These unexpected results will further drive theories about the formation of asteroids and our solar system. The Lucy spacecraft will continue on to a flyby of asteroid Donald Johansson in 2025, then on to its primary mission of five flybys of Trojan asteroids out at the distance of Jupiter in 2027 and 2033. Another top story in 2023 is a troubling story. Over the past 50 years, bird populations in North America and in Europe have declined in alarming numbers, over 30% decline in North America and a similar decline in Europe. Climate change, habitat loss, birds hitting lighted windows at night, pollution and pesticides all have been implicated in this bird decline. While all these do lead to bird population decline, last year a major study in Europe has concluded that the principal reason so many birds are dying is agricultural intensification, especially the use of pesticides and fertilizers. This European study relied on a great deal of data from citizen scientists and a broad analysis of bird populations. At How on Earth, we predict similar studies to come from the United States in the years ahead, with some of the data for those studies coming from Kyle Horton, director of Colorado State University's Aero Ecolab, a key member of BirdCast Bird Migration Forecasting. How on Earth's Shelley Schlender interviewed Dr. Kyle Horton in 2023. Here's an excerpt from that interview. Here's more from BirdCast developer and scientist, CSU professor Kyle Horton. What's the number of birds that'll be migrating over Colorado or the U.S. or any specific county across the United States? And these forecasts fall under an umbrella of a project we call BirdCast. It's a site for really all things migratory birds. If you want to know where they're flying or which species might be flying, we integrate radar data, we integrate things like eBird community science data, to deliver products back to the public, to re-excite them about birds or get them excited to go bird watching the next day. Today we're up in Fort Collins at CSU in an old-fashioned blonde brick building with the name Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. We're in Kyle Horton's Aero Eco Lab. Researchers here have regular computers. They're studying anything that migrates in the air, so birds, bats, and insects. They do this using radar, acoustics, and community science data that includes bird identification from the Merlin smartphone app, and also data from bird banding. For more, here's Kyle Horton. There's been a history of, of tools that we can use to study migratory birds, and one of those first tools was really bird banding, the capture of a bird, putting some identifiable unit on its leg usually, and then seeing where that bird might be recaptured somewhere else, or if it comes back to your backyard the next year. Folks have been banding birds for hundreds of years now. Millions of birds have been banded. I mean, they give really good information about the species and the age and the sex of the birds, wing length, lots of measurements. 
But as technology has evolved, we've used other tools. For instance, what my lab uses is radar data. So weather surveillance radars are used to capture the movements of birds at broad scales. Kyle Horton's concerned about bird population declines. Big declines. Bird populations have been on a decline for probably the last 50 or so years with an estimated loss of about 3 billion breeding birds in North America. We can see the declines just from historical benchmarks. There's lots of estimates out there, but we have a good sense of probably around a 30% decline, right? So maybe there are 12 billion, we lost 3 billion breeding birds. Kyle Horton says we need better understanding and greater public awareness about the nationwide decline of migrating birds. That's a reason he and his team do daily birdcast forecasts. And it's an effort that's taken a long time to craft. You know, birdcast used to be a lot of manual effort. Folks would stay up all night or they'd wake up very early to make a forecast. It might be a manually typed out forecast. We'd look at weather maps and say, you know, from our best judgment, this area should be good for bird watching. That's, you know, in the rear view now. We have algorithms, we have pipelines that automatically create forecasts four times a day. Um, so that allows myself and all my colleagues to sleep at night, wake up, see what the forecast showed us. And there's a lot more on the horizon of, of what we can do with that. Our dream is that we unify all of these technologies, radar and acoustics and community science. As we add more technology, we bring more people into understanding and appreciating migration. You know, share this excitement with the public broadly, not just in the U.S. or in North America, uh, but all around the world. That was Dr. Kyle Horton speaking in an excerpt from our 2023 science show about how Dr. Horton tracks birds at CSU, then shares the data with bird lovers and citizen scientists through his BirdCast bird migration forecasts. We hope in the year ahead, the U.S. may follow the European lead to do more top science stories of the year research about the impacts of pesticides and fertilizers on bird decline with data on bird health coming from groups such as BirdCast. We finish our sample of 2023 news stories with a hopeful story about using CRISPR technology to treat sickle cell disease. How on Earth's Beth Bennett tells us more. In Africa and some Mediterranean regions, malaria has long been an endemic disease caused by a parasite that infects red blood cells that carry vital oxygen to tissues. Sickle cell disease is characterized by chronic anemia, recurrent episodes of intense pain, organ damage, elevated risk of stroke, and premature mortality. What's the connection? A mutation in the gene for hemoglobin, which carries oxygen in the blood, gives the molecule and the cell a sickle shape, making it difficult for the parasite to get in. People with one copy of the gene are protected against malaria, while those with two copies develop the disease, affecting over 100,000 people in the U.S. alone. The only potential cure developed late in the 20th century was a bone marrow transplant, although the body can reject the bone marrow. A few years ago, researchers began using CRISPR gene editing technology to replace the faulty gene that underlies the disease. And in 2023, the FDA here in the U.S. and the National Health Service in the U.K. approved a genetic treatment called Cascovy. The gene editing technology CRISPR is used to cut DNA in a target gene, here the gene for hemoglobin in the patient's own bone marrow cells. 
The modified blood stem cells are transplanted back into the patient where they grow and multiply in the bone marrow and increase the production of fetal hemoglobin, a type of hemoglobin that restores oxygen delivery. In patients with sickle cell disease, increased levels of the fetal form prevent the sickling of red blood cells, which causes the disease symptoms. These results have the potential to be lifelong. In a clinical trial of Casgevy for sickle cell disease, 28 of 29 patients experienced no episodes of major pain, which can result in hospitalization for at least a year afterwards. While heartening, it remains to be seen how the potential risks play out. Will the positive outcomes continue in the long term? What about safety implications? There is, for example, the possibility that CRISPR can sometimes make unintended genetic modifications with unknown effect. Finally, this therapy may cost as much as $2 million a person, putting it out of reach for those in the most affected areas of the globe. Past experience has shown us, however, that once a new technology is adopted, costs often drop dramatically. For KG News How on Earth, I'm Beth Bennett. Well, that rounds out our New Year's show, looking back at some of the science in 2023. Come back and listen to How on Earth every Tuesday morning to discover what science might make our roundup next year. Until then, Happy New Year. And as Buzz Lightyear might say, To 2024 and beyond. And beyond. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show is produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett, Shelley Schlender, and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.